Hi, and welcome to the Oil and Gas Accounting Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tom Weyerman, Executive Director of COPUS, the Council of Petroleum Accountant Societies. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Sherwood, owner and founder of Sherware, that provides software for oil and gas operators and accountants. If you're a CPA, an accountant, a bookkeeper, an office manager, or if you're an oil and gas operator doing your own accounting, this podcast is for you. We're here talking with the experts in their respective accounting areas to keep you up to speed on the latest accounting news, rules, and data. There is so much happening in the world today, especially in oil and gas, that affects the accounting function of a business. Our job on this podcast is to keep you up to date and help you see more, know more, and do more as an accounting professional in our field. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Oil & Gas Accounting Podcast. I'm Phil Sherwood, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Weirman. Hello, everybody. You know, today's episode is literally out of this world. Phil, give our listeners just a little insight by what I mean. Yeah, Tom, I've always been interested in space. And actually, in fourth grade, I built the Apollo rocket with its boosters and lunar lander and everything. I just love space. We're going to be talking about satellites today, and we're going to be learning how satellites are being used in our industry. Well, I'm really excited. Our guest today is Eric Anderson. Eric is the Chief Technology Officer for Synmax. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for being with us today, Eric. Why don't you start out by giving us a little bit of your history? You know, like where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to high school? And then how did you get interested in satellites? My origin story isn't very interesting. Grew up in Colorado. Um, which is also where I went to college at Colorado State University. Um, I should have majored in computer science, but instead I majored in finance. I just you know, attribute it to uh, the naivety of youth. Um, and I graduated into one of the worst job markets for finance in history in 2011, right on the heels of the financial crisis. So my first job ended up being in oil and gas because at the time, oil and gas prices were real high, not unlike today. And there was a lot of uh, hiring going on in Houston. So I worked as an accountant wasn't a good fit for me. We don't have to get into that. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for accountants. <laughs> it just wasn't my uh, my skill oh, set. I said, oh, but we will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can unpack that later. Moved yeah. on to Merrill Lynch where I learned the oil and gas trading business. Um, and then I went to a hedge fund called Schuyler Capital where I became the head of quantitative model development, um, eventually leaving that to start a company called Synmax, which we'll talk about in a bit. You talked about uh, you wish you had majored in computer science. I had a, my roommate in college, I majored in computer science, he majored in finance. And to this day, he regrets it. So did you not know about computer science at the time and didn't know you would be so interested in it? Or what was the reason I, I did. for finance? Yeah, actually, my dad is a software engineer. And growing up, I took programming lessons. You know, I knew the C programming language when I was 12 years old, and I had a wow. huge interest in it. So I don't know why I didn't major in it. You know, maybe I just wanted to rebel and do something different. But the funny I why, thing is, I know why my roommate did it. It's because the classes were all a lot easier than computer science. <laughs> oh, I believe it. <laughs> and and maybe that was part of the reason, but I wouldn't admit that. <laughs> it was definitely an easier degree than computer science, I'm sure. But it's kind of interesting because you know when I graduated with a finance degree and I finally started working in finance at Merrill Lynch. I watched the entire financial industry morph into computer science over the course of like five years. Like when I started working, everything was done on Excel spreadsheets. And now it's all done with Python. Like everybody who wants to be successful in finance has to learn to code anyways. So it yeah. it seems like we should really, you know, get rid of the finance major in general and just send them all to computer science school. <laughs> yeah. 
with the computer science with a finance major or minor man. Yeah, maybe we just turn finance into a minor. But anybody who asks me for advice um, in finance, which isn't many people, um, I would tell them, you know, learn computer science. The entire finance industry has just become computer science with a data science emphasis. That's really interesting. Well, it's interesting as you say Excel, and I mean that's so many accountants. We live and die by that, or at least people of my age do. I learned Excel without a mouse, if you can imagine wow. that. So I, I actually do a lot of keystrokes and stuff, and people look at me like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I bet you're a lot faster at it. Well, I think so, but that's just yeah. Keep, <laughs> yeah and and I don't mean to um, faster downplay the value of Excel. Excel is a super powerful oh, tool no. and I still use Excel. If I'm dealing with a data set that's less than 10,000 rows and I just kind of want to explore it and, and quickly develop some charts, Excel is the best tool for that. It is quick and dirty. It is quick and dirty. And that's what we use yeah. it a lot for. But I'm anxious to get into really the topic for today and talk a lot more about you, the data that you're collecting that isn't something we'd find in a spreadsheet necessarily in the accounting world. So you mentioned you formed Synmax, or you were in on the ground floor. Tell us a little bit about the company, how to get it start, and we're going to rock and roll into really why we have you on today. Yeah, definitely. So I was head of quantitative model development at Skylar, and I discovered there that satellites are an excellent tool for learning things about the oil and gas industry. You know, one of the challenges of the oil and gas industry is that all of its assets are so distributed across such an enormous area. You know, you have huge producing regions, not just the Permian, but the Northeast and the Bakken all over the country, right? And you have thousands of small moving parts that are determining in aggregate what the total of production is going to be. And you have this, you know, spaghetti chart of pipelines, right? So energy is, is super distributed and traditional methods of collecting information about it are not very good. And you know, I was fortunate enough that during my career, I kind of watched the growth of the consumer satellite industry. You know, it was only five years ago that satellites were pretty much exclusively the purview of governments. And now that has changed, thanks to two things. So we have dramatically falling launch costs because right. of SpaceX, right? Mm -hmm. And we have huge economies of scale from something called CubeSats, which are basically manufactured satellites that are relatively small, small enough. Some of them are the size of a coffee can, right? Like the uh, PlanetScope satellites. They're, they're seriously the size of a coffee can. Those innovations in the industry have made it possible for a lot of companies like Planet Labs and others to launch huge constellations of satellites and sell this, in this imagery at prices never before thought possible. So I want to give you one data point because I know you two are numbers guys. I can't tell you who the company is because I signed an NDA, but I was recently in a meeting with a company that was offering us a payload on one of their satellites, right? So it's just a slot on their bus for you to put whatever you want. You can put a camera, you can put an antenna, you can put whatever within their specs, right? They guaranteed an orbit of seven years. So it would stay in orbit for seven years. And the total cost, launch costs included, was $150,000. Oh, wow. That's how cheap wow. it's gotten. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So for $150,000, Phil, you could have a satellite. You think building a model of the Saturn V is cool. <laughs> Hey, and get yourself your own satellite. Yeah. I was saving for an airplane, but maybe I want my own satellite instead. It, it, it actually is cheaper. <laughs> it is. I, so I don't think you could buy a Cessna 172 for, for that cheap. Yeah. Yeah, really. You can't get them that cheap. That's for sure. So when you talk about 150 grand for a satellite, tell us what type of orbit is that or can you pick? 
Is it over one stationary spot on the Earth or is it? Um, no. So what you're describing is called a geostationary orbit. And a geostationary yeah. orbit is really, really far out from the Earth because height and speed are dependent on each other in a satellite's orbit. And so there's only one spot where you can get geostationary. You can get locked into the same orbit of the Earth, and it's really, really far away. So those satellites are generally communication satellites. This was a low Earth orbit, and most everything in the commercial space is low Earth orbit because it's much cheaper to get to. And you don't get to pick a specific orbit in this case. SpaceX has a service called Rideshare where you load up the rocket with as many satellites as you can. You buy all these slots on the satellite. This is how they make it so cheap. And then it launches, and then you get the orbit you get. It just throws the satellites out, and you, you get whatever orbit you happen to get. And that's how a lot of cheap optical satellites are launched nowadays. Although what you want to try and achieve is called a sun-synchronous orbit, which is the most ideal orbit for optical imaging because you spend the most time in daylight. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah that that's is really so interesting. interesting. Well, let's back up a second. And you said you got involved in modeling. Now, that wasn't something you took in college. So how did you learn data modeling? Part of it was my CFA credential, which has a lot of data modeling built into it. Um, The rest of it was just out of necessity. You know, oil and gas trading, like I was saying, it went from a business where you could fit everything in 2000 rows or less on an Excel spreadsheet. And then there just became this proliferation in data that now you have hundreds of millions of rows that have to be managed. And so, you know, naturally the job of managing all that data fell to us in the oil and gas industry. And we had to start developing modeling. There are people that specialize in just that, but my story is I'm self-taught. Very interesting. That's, that's how a lot of people get into their own niche these days. This is not something they learned in college, but it's something they got interested in or something out of necessity that they had to learn. And then it got to be fascinating for them. Yeah. I, I think we are probably the luckiest generation alive so far, right? In the sense that all the world's information is available at our fingertips. It is so easily accessible. You can learn any skill you want from your phone. It's amazing. Yeah, from your phone. And and for people who are ambitious and creative, you know, this is a godsend. You can just spend all your free time learning new skills. Yeah. So cool. So let's go back to Cinemax again. So how did it get its start? Uh, How did it get access to all these satellites and data and stuff like that? Sure. Yeah. So we we started with an angel investment, mostly from other energy traders. The big one was uh, Bill Perkins, who is the owner of Skylar Capital. And getting access to this data is as simple as uh, establishing a relationship with a satellite operator. In our case, you know, after evaluating different operators available at the time, we settled on Planet Labs because they have a constellation of 200 satellites that cover every point in the Earth twice a day. So I can get two pictures a day of any point in the Earth from their constellation. And it was an excellent fit for what our flagship product would end up becoming, Hyperion, because it is so hard to predict where a frat crew is going to go, right? And, and that's what we do is we track these frat crews in near real time. The first problem is, what even is a frat crew? right? It is a collection of hundreds of different things, right? There's the frack trucks, but then there are, there's all these insulary services that are required for it to operate. And those pieces, you know, when they're on a well pad, they're a singular unit. When they leave the well pad, they disaggregate and they mix up with other units and then they come back. So this idea of tracking a frack crew is difficult, right? So we 
decided to focus just on the well pads and to define frat crews only when they're on the well pads. And Planet Labs Constellation allowed us basically to monitor every single well pad that has a permit filed on it every day. And that is what was required in order for us to accomplish this. So getting back to your question, yeah, that's how we started with an angel investment, just a couple of us building this product. And you know, we just very early on established uh, a relationship with Planet Labs to get the data we needed. So Eric, you're looking over the shoulder of all these people out there fracking and stuff. I mean, from a, from a very high level, you're getting images every day. And so you're kind of watching these, these frack crews, I guess, or these, the, um, the process. So all the equipment arrives and you're, you're tracking that, you're seeing that. When, when you talk about the data that you're collecting with a series of 200 satellites taking images a couple of times a day at each location, do you ever end up with data you don't know what to do with or don't know how to use? Yeah, there's a lot of waste in this system because we don't know in advance where the frackers are going to be. So we have to take so many pictures to cover our bases to make sure that we're finding them all. But you haven't figured um, out the use for that just yet. You're good. You're yeah, gonna do I, that. I, and, and I have <laughs> I thought tell. a lot about it. I would love to create another product out of this data. Um, I think there are some kind of adjacent markets that we can explore with it. But you know, most of the pictures we take are pictures of empty fields. Uh, I, you know, we we do see the process of them clearing the well pad, right? Because when when we when the permit gets filed, when we start taking pictures of the location the permit was filed for, it's it's just a farmer's field or it's just an empty lot, right? And then we see the dozers come in and they clear it, and we see the crews come in to set everything up, and then we see the rig come in, then we see the rig leave, and then we see the frack crew come in, and you know we've made all that data available to our customers. But in terms of like turning those images into an additional product. Yeah, that's something I've thought a lot about and I haven't come up with anything yet. I'm, I'm not sure what the market is for uh, random pictures of to, empty fields. Yeah, you could put together some really cool time-lapse of here's how a well gets built. You know, oh, from yeah. The field to, 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 you know, just a picture every day for like four or five years. That would be really cool. Yeah, and, and we have as part of our marketing material. It is cool to see the process happen. Oh, I had to go look, look up that. Yeah, I probably took us down the rabbit hole a little bit on that last comment, but I was just curious. I mean, if you're if you're collecting tons and tons of data, I mean, there's there's got to be a use for all of it at some point, but we just don't know yet what that's going to be. So maybe let's let's go ahead, Phil. Before we dive in to the specific products that Sendmax offers, could you just give us a little lesson on how satellites may have been used in the past in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, definitely. So the first usage of satellites for oil and gas that I'm aware of is a company called Orbital Insight, and their innovation was using satellites to measure the level of floating top oil storage. So if your listeners don't know this, those large containers that you see driving down the highway on I-10 in Texas, the tops of them move up and down. And they do that because they don't want to have any air in the oil tank because it, it, it creates a risk. And so Orbital Insight created a product where they measure the level of all these different floating stop storage to give people insights into the storage of oil that they otherwise wouldn't have. Beyond that, satellites have a lot of potential for oil and gas, but I don't think there are many companies out there exploring their application outside of Synmax, mostly because until very recently, most of these satellite operators didn't want to sell and share their data. They were telling their investors that 
they wanted to capture the total value chain. They wanted to completely vertically integrate, right? So they're going to both launch the satellites, take the pictures, and they're going to create their own products out of them. And it wasn't until recently they conceded that last part of the value chain to companies like ours, because they discovered that creating products out of this stuff is a specialty unto itself. And it's very different from the specialty of manufacturing and launching satellites. So I think the... um, you know, it's it's ripe for a lot of disruption. It's ripe for a lot of satellites to um, you know continue to provide value to the market. But we're you know we're just sitting at the very beginning of it. When you collect all this data, Eric, what do you do with it? I mean, you can't process it by hand, so you've got to use a computer model of some kind. Is this machine learning? Is this artificial intelligence? What is it? Yeah, it's machine learning. It's it's nothing that I think an average CS grad couldn't do, right? It's simple object detection. We know where the well pad is. We, we you know we want to define the boundaries of the well pad, and then we want to determine the objects that exist, if any, on the well pad. It's it's a pretty simple problem. But where machine learning adds value is in its scalability, right? No human being wants to look at hundreds of thousands of pictures as well pads. And so, you know, we have developed a proprietary model that does just this, and it's gotten very good because we've been running it for a number of years now. We have tons and tons of data, and it produces a very accurate result. So you you kind of cube all that together and you can tell the story based on the information you're pulling from various tables and what have you. Based on exactly. That, based on that machine learning data. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. So one of your first jobs was with commodities and now you're using satellites to help tracking commodities and for investors. Can you tell us a little bit about the value proposition there? Why, why would they want to know this information? I think it's a part of a bigger picture. And that is that the world is involved in one of the most ambitious and complex transitions that has ever been undertaken, right? The energy infrastructure of the world is the largest machine in the world. And we are drastically changing the way that it operates over the next 20 years as we transition away from traditional fuel sources and increasingly onto renewables. And the value proposition of what Synmax is offering is information that is going to aid in this transition, right? Our industry is notorious for its boom-bust cycle. And we you know, have not enough of it. The price goes up. We drill too much, right? There's a bust. We now have too much. <laughs> and you know, it repeats over and over and over again. And the way that we combat that and create stability and allow you know, the energy transition to occur with as little pain as possible is with the right kind of information. And it's kind of an open secret in commodity trading that supply is very difficult to understand. You will see estimates of what today's supply is, but nobody really actually knows. There is the EIA, which collects information about what total supply is, but that information comes out on a you know four to six month lag. Yeah, it's a, it's um, and a they only give lag. it to you monthly. And yeah. so, you know, traders and, and people who are participating in the market, they try to get this information more frequently, but all the methods they use are nothing but modeling, right? And, and modeling is only good as the assumptions, and there's just not a lot of clarity in this area. So what we're offering is the ability for people to more clearly see what's happening to production and better make decisions. Very, very interesting. Yeah, because I was wondering what would they actually do with this data, but not understanding the investment side and, and commodity traders. I've always wanted to trade commodities, but was never brave enough to jump in. It's a lot of fun, especially right now where things are so volatile. Um, <laughs> you know, the essential function of commodity trading is to understand what the supply and demand of a particular commodity is so that information about it can be appropriately priced, right? We have natural market participants 
in commodities. We have um, obviously producers who are selling, right? And then we have utilities who are buying, but the producers selling are selling on the forward curve, right? right. They're drilling a well now and it's not going to be ready for months, right? Or they're making plans to drill a well in a year and it's not going to be ready for a certain amount of time. Whereas the utilities they're buying are buying it right now. And so you need some type of market participant to ferry those sales over into the present time. And in order to do that, you have to understand exactly what the value of that commodity is. And so the commodity trading business is essential to energy infrastructure because it it allows all the natural participants in the market to transact with each other, even though they're in different sections of the futures curve. But it's more yeah. real time. It's more real time than than you know looking back in the back in the past and and seeing all that that data and information. The data that you guys provide is more real time than the EIA data, the other data that the commodities used to use. That's correct. Or currently still use. Yeah. So okay. it's it's giving market participants more current information. Right. Could this be used for something, you know, oil and gas producers, they have to hedge a lot of times. And the data they have is the six-month-old data or, you know, just forecast or predictions. Do you see a use where some operators could use data from what you provide to do a better hedge and know when to hedge and, and when yeah definitely buy. yeah hedging is a huge part of what operators do you know they're deciding how much of their production their future production they're going to lock in to prices right now versus how much they're going to you know accept to just float with the market which can be a tremendous risk right operators who had hedged effectively before the covid pandemic i'm sure none of them anticipated the you know the pandemic like none of us did right but they they fared much better than those who didn't hedge. And on the other side of it, those who locked in at low prices following the pandemic, you know, they suffered a lot of pain now that prices are much higher. So hedging is, you know, requires the same type of information that energy trading requires. It requires you to have a forward-looking assumption about what's going to happen in the marketplace. And so yeah, this information could be really beneficial for that endeavor. But I think, you know, producers also should want it just from a market strategy standpoint. They want to know what their competitors are up to. They want to know what fields are developing, which ones are, are potentially going to be hitting their pipeline constraints by overproducing. You know, there's a huge business strategy element to this data as well. Oh yeah, I could see where they could they could look at a tract of where they're getting ready to drill and say, okay, who else has got frack crews? Who's who else is, you know, doing things around me that it could could affect the reservoir I'm going into. That's true. Yeah, there's probably a geological component to it as well, like you said. Mm-hmm. That's something I hadn't right. considered, but you're right. I mean, that would be one of the one of the aspects of it as well. Just understanding, you know, the drainage and those kinds of things going on. But interesting. What other products and things do you offer at Synmax that we might want to talk about today? Sure. So another big product we're working on is called Thea, and it is a dark vessel detection product. So a dark vessel is a ship that has stopped transponding because they don't want people to see what they're up to. Right. The ocean is enormous. It is not adequately covered by radar. And when they stop transponding their location, they become invisible to just about everybody. You know, people are surprised to learn even the US Navy, even the militaries of the world may not have eyes on them just because of how big the ocean is. And, and you know, nobody has the assets deployed all around the world to, to see what's going on. So, you know, we have found through our work with these satellite companies that a lot of satellite data providers throw their over ocean imagery away because they don't believe there's a market for it. So as their satellites fly over the ocean, you know, they are capable of collecting that overwater imagery, but you know, how much value is there in taking a lot of pictures of the waves, right? 
Um, so we've approached a number of them and found that they're you know, willing to sell us this data at rock bottom prices. And then using kind of advanced algorithms, we ex- extract out of that data where all the ships are, we pair it up to the transmissions and we discover the vessels that are not transmitting. And so we can perform dark vessel detection at scale. So what are those dark vessels doing out there? I think we all know, but what are, what are, what are we seeing? Some of them are you know, doing things that aren't too terrible, right? They're, they're cutting shipping lanes, right? They're cutting corners to save fuel and time. Uh, when they're not supposed to do that, those shipping lanes are there for a reason. Um, and some of them are up to things much more pernicious. Some of them are uh, engaging in illegal fishing, right? And I'm not talking about you know two rednecks in a rowboat without a fishing license. These are country-level operations, right? The Chinese fishing fleet has over 17,000 vessels, and they are explicitly supported by the Chinese government with the goal of providing food security to their country. And every year they travel to Western African nations and they just pillage those waters of its natural resource. They horrendously overfish it because the Western African countries simply don't have the resources to be able to combat them. Right. Right. And then there's other instances, there's piracy, right? Pirate vessels will, will stay out in the water for months at a time and wait for the right target and our detections can pick them up. Um, and then of course there's, you know, clandestine commodity flows, uh, the Russians moving grain or oil against sanctions. They're all switching their transponders off to engage in that kind of activity. So there's huge, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year problem that occur on the ocean from, uh, uh, failures to, to correctly transpond. But the first question I have is if they're turning off their transponders, how do you track them? I mean, you see a, a ship on the ocean, but how in the world do you know what ship that is? Hmm. Yeah. So the trick is that you want to catch them both when they are transponding and when they're not transponding. And then you can match them up together to determine what ship they are. So when they, you know, the AIS system, which is the system that is used now for all ships to, to broadcast their location, it was never invented to be a system like this. It was actually meant to be a, a, a collision avoidance system, right? So when they switch off their trans, you know, when they when they go into port, they have to have this system on. As part of the rules of the port, they have to be transponding. And so the trick is you want to catch them when they're going into port or catch them when they're going into a restricted waterway like the Panama or Suez Canal and get a profile of the ship and then continue monitoring them regularly when they go dark. That is so cool. I guess it's a little bit like, you know, we were all watching the movie Pearl Harbor and, you know, the, the Japanese fleet are coming in and they're looking for images of how to, how to determine, I guess, which battleships are which as they were setting in the harbor there. And they were looking at their at the picture of their illustration, you know, in their cockpit. And it's like, oh, that's the one. So is that similar to what you're doing here? So it's kind of kind of a silhouette or an image that you've that you've identified um, yeah, well, yeah I, I don't want to compare myself to uh, you know the Japanese bombing us at Pearl Harbor, but um, <laughs> there is something called a Siamese network, which is ah, okay. a, um, a machine learning network that can compare two images and tell you the likelihood of a match. And they've gotten really advanced. You know, some of the um, classic examples out there. You know, you have a person walking by, and the Siamese network sees the front of them, and then you have another picture of them, and the Siamese network sees the back of them, and it can still make a match. You know, based on the characteristics of that person. So we're it's doing something similar. Rec- yeah, recognition kinds of things is what I was exactly. Yeah, so so, that, so we okay. can tell based on okay. the features of the ship what ship it is. But there's still a lot of identical ships out there, right? So right. one of the other tools we have in our toolbox is 
you know, ships are limited to move at a certain speed and the ocean is really big. Voyages can take weeks. So, you know, we know simply based on mass, when a ship is observed, what is the possible sphere of other ships that it could have been, right? So how far out should we look in space and time to find a match to it? Because a ship can't travel at the speed of light. It, it can't. Yeah. So what type of resolution are we talking here? What can you sure. make out on those ships other than yeah, just we, we use a number of different constellations. Some of them, you know, the resolution is as bad as three meters, which means the pixels are three meters by three meters, which, you know, you can still get a lot of defining features on some of the bigger ships. But we also use constellations that have, you know, higher resolution as low as 75 centimeters. And you can get a lot of information on ships from those. Okay. But as far as those frack crews, you can't get individual characteristics of a person. One no, person on that no certainly not. Yeah. And it, it's not necessary. Yeah. You know, that, that type of satellite imagery right. exists, but it's a lot more expensive. And because really all we need to do is see the presence of the frack crew or the rig. Um, you know, we purchase the cheapest resolution we can get away with. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people probably listening are thinking, oh, no privacy. You know, they're spying on all our crews and stuff. And, and I think they were okay until you just said there's technology that exists that does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, if, if somebody wanted to, and, and this is a whole nother can of worms, right? The satellite imagery at high resolution exists and is available to anyone to purchase. You know, the highest resolution I think available on the market right now is 30 centimeters, which is pretty good. I would compare it to um, you know, getting close to what you see on Google Maps, which a lot of people don't know, Google Maps isn't actually satellite imagery, it's aerial imagery. And that resolution is 10 centimeters. But, you know, they're approaching that. There's a company out of Austin called Albedo Space that is launching a 10 centimeter satellite. So we're going to, as a society, have to contend with these issues of privacy. Who is allowed to access this data? Is this allowed to be public? Because, you know, we're very soon entering this world where people are going to be able to make individual person identifications from space. Yeah, that's kind of scary when you think about it, the implications of that. It is. And I think it's, it's, you know, resolving that is going to be part of a larger conversation about data privacy in general that is long overdue, you know, because there's a lot of forms of personal information that are just floating out on the inf- internet available to anybody. And, you know, people should have some basic right to privacy. Um, so I think all of these new technologies, you know, this, this, it's, it's, it's long overdue that we, we have a conversation about data privacy as a society and decide what the boundaries are. So you talked about dark ship coverage. What other products, services do Synmax offer? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of ideas. We have to be careful about not going down too many, right? Because you know, then we'll accomplish nothing if we spread our resources too thin. But right. something that I think is really cool that I've been looking a lot into recently is hyperspectral from space. So hyperspectral technology is nothing new, right? It just means you're using a camera that can detect light outside of the visible light spectrum. And what's interesting about that is different chemical components react differently to light outside of the spectrum. So you can start to get an idea of what the chemical composition of an object is when you use cameras like this. And this has been used in healthcare. This has been used in manufacturing. This has been used for the military for a long time, but for the first time, really, it's becoming available in space from commercial satellites. And I think there's a lot of really cool applications that can come from that. For example, Planet Labs is launching a constellation of satellites that will be able to tell you they have so many hyperspectral bands on them that they will be able to look at a car and tell you not only what kind of car it is, which isn't that interesting, but they'll be able to tell you in what factory the paint on that car was manufactured because of this very precise hyperspectral information. 
And you know, the, the applications of that kind of technology are just fascinating, right? There, there are things as benign as I could tell, you know, what kind of shingles are on everybody's roof. And you know, I can tell the the health of plants and crops and et cetera. But um, you know, something cool that we're doing research in, we're a small company, but we're actually doing a little bit of proprietary R&D. Um, we want to develop a technology that will allow us to uniquely fingerprint uh, oil and gas assets, right? So this, this comes back to oil and gas. When you build a pipeline or you build a big gas project in anything outside of a first world country, there's usually a huge risk of theft, right? Or of some type of uh, shady arrangement going on. A, a popular one is, you know, I'm, I'm going to build a pipeline through XYZ country, and I'm going to supply this high quality pipeline for it. Um, so I send the pipeline out, and then the pipeline that gets built is built with old, cheap, stolen pipeline. And the pipeline that I sent was sold on the black market, right? Well, with hyperspectral fingerprinting, we want there to be able to paint your product with a particular hyperspectral paint that will act almost like a fingerprint. It will be manufactured in a way that it cannot be recreated, and it will give every single section of pipe a barcode that you can track from space anytime you want. That's pretty wow. cool. Yeah. We'll see if we can pull it off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. Wow. And it will be invisible ambitious. to the naked eye. Um, you know, to, oh, to, um, to you oh, and me, really? it'll just look like a red pipe. And I will not ah, be able to tell the difference between this red pipe and that red pipe. But so they're they going to have the most barcode and go scratch it off. Exactly. They will. They will have the most <laughs> subtle chemical differences in them that a hyperspectral camera will be able to pick it up and tell you exactly what section of pipe it is. So could satellites detect things like methane emissions and those those kinds of things, CO two, all that? I mean, is that something that you could could use that technology for? Yeah, that technology is currently being used, and it's a part of hyperspectral. The, the Planet Labs constellation, they're, they're called Pinnacle, uh, uh, Pelican satellites. They are a part of their effort called Carbon Mapper, which the idea behind them is they're going to use these satellites to detect all sources of carbon and methane emission around the world and basically create the ability for total uncorruptible accountability, where you can see directly exactly where these emissions are coming from and who is responsible for them. So no shady activity going out there, people reporting one thing when it's not really accurate and vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, everybody's saying all these CO2 emissions are coming from this one industry, but whoops, we found out it's all coming from over here. Yeah. <laughs> that would be very interesting right. if some of that stuff well, came out. The undeniable accountability, I believe, is the phrase you used. Yeah. That would be, yeah. that would be quite useful. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that is neat. So can you tell us stuff that you're thinking about in the future, what excites you? You know, one thing that I thought of when you were talking about the resolution of some of this stuff and how accessible this information is, you know, I'm thinking about police departments or detectives or, you know, where they, they go into a, a store and say, can you roll back the footage for, you know, the last 12 hours so we can see, you know, I can see this coming to law enforcement where they can say, hey, can you roll back this, the footage on this area so many hours and let us see what was going on during that time? I mean, it sounds like science fiction, but it's almost here. Yeah, I could see that working, but there would, of course, be a number of challenges, right? Um, the first one is that, you know, even if you get two pictures a day, they might not be at the right time and there might be a cloud in the sure. way. 
or you know the the <laughs> incident that you're interested in in looking at occurred inside <laughs> or under a tree. <laughs> right. um, you see the, you know, see the we, two people. A cloud comes by, and one guy's down on the ground. The other guy's gone. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I mean, there's, like yeah. the coincidences would almost have to be too great for that to be useful for um, a typical crime investigation, but. Yeah, I, th- I think there there are definitely still ways that it could become useful. You see it getting to more than two pictures a day. With yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's um, a company called Satellogic that their constellation can now cover seven times a day for every point in the Earth. But you know, you that would require you to proactively take these pictures, right? right. That means that you know the Houston Police Department or whoever's looking at it would ha- would need to task seven photos a day and just hold just purchase and hold on to these these pictures in the hopes yeah. that they'll you know capture evidence for a crime. And that is, you know, mass surveillance on a scale that uh, I think a lot of people would be uncomfortable with, including myself. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Big brother, big time. Yeah. So what, what is it that excites you? What, what uses are you thinking about that uh, gets you excited? Sure. I'm really interested in a satellite technology called SAR. It stands for Synthetic Aperture Radar. It's nothing new. It's been around since the 50s. But unlike an optical camera, which just collects the light being reflected back from Earth, this is an active emitter. It sends out a radio signal and then it measures the emission as it comes back and you can reconstruct a picture from it. And because you control the emission, you can very precisely measure the recorded echo and tell some really interesting things. There's a type of analysis called vibrometry which basically you can tell how objects are moving or vibrating. Um, like for example, you could take a SAR image of the city of Houston and you could tell the state of every car in the picture, whether its engine is running or not, right? Or you could tell the state of every air conditioner in the picture, whether it's currently spinning or not. Um, and not only that, but when done precisely, you can tell how fast things are spinning or moving with this type of analysis. And then another really cool thing about SAR is called subsidence analysis, which can be used to measure to the scale of millimeters how much things have moved between observations. And so there's um, there's some really cool SAR projects done online where you can see the movement of towers in San Francisco. Um, I forget I forget the name of it, but it's it's a real famous tower that had you know a real bad settlement issue with it, and they use SAR to measure exactly how it's moving. Um, they can detect landslides in advance. They can detect volcanoes um, when they're getting ready to erupt. And a project I did, which relates to oil and gas, which turned out not to be successful, but it wasn't because of you know the lack of technology of SAR, was we tried to measure the ground movement at the surface of underground gas storage. So there's you know along the Gulf Coast, there's these underground salt reservoirs where they inject water to create a space and then they store gas in them. And you know it's how we have enough gas to make it through the wintertime, which is the biggest consuming season uh, for natural mm-hmm. gas. And we use SAR satellites to measure the displacement in the ground above these uh, storage units, because as they inject gas into them, the ground slowly moves up, right? And as they take gas out, it slowly moves down. And we did detect the movement, but the problem is, is there was too much noise in the data because there's a lot of other things that cause the ground to move up and down, like the, the moisture and humidity and plant cover, et cetera. So I think, I think SAR is a really, really cool technology and the applications of it have, have not you know, been explored sufficiently in the commercial space. So we're nearing the end of this episode. What final thoughts would you want to leave our listeners about this technology and how it can be used in oil and gas? Yeah. So I think we are at the precipice of a new industry being born. 
with satellite imagery. All the pieces are finally in place, right? We have the satellites, obviously the most important ingredient. We have you know cheap data coming from them that is sufficient or high resolution. Um, we have machine learning. We have the costs of processing machine learning um, that has come down dramatically. And you know we're just kind of waiting for companies or people to emerge and take this new data set and turn it into something valuable. You know, Synmax is obviously very focused on the maritime space and on the oil and gas space, but you know the applications of this technology for a myriad of industries are as of yet unserved and untapped. And I think that satellite imagery is going to play a very big role in the business world in the next few years. And then eventually it's going to start playing a very big role in the average person's life in the years after that. And I don't think many people are aware that that's coming. Well, we're not aware that it's, that it's coming, I guess, because it's, it's, it seems like it's still um, in its infancy a little bit, but it's like everything else is going to overtake us really quickly. And we're going to try to figure out how we can, how we can make it really work for us, like, like what you've been doing. But this has been an interesting conversation today. I wish we had a lot more time. Uh, there's a lot of more questions that need to be answered, but thanks for being our guest today, Eric. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. You know, what you guys are doing is so fascinating. So thanks for taking the time to share with us today, Eric. Uh, we're going to put your contact info in the show notes. If anybody wants to find out more about Synmax and what you do, they can go to your site. It's synmax.com, I believe, S-Y-N-M-A-X.com. That's Is right. That correct? Yep. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please reach out to Eric if you want to find out more about what they're doing at Synmax. Also, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the show so that you're notified when we drop the next episode. Until next time, goodbye. Bye, everybody. If you're an oil and gas operator who wants to simplify and automate the way you handle distributions, joint interest billings, and you use QuickBooks, you'll want to see a free demo of our software at Sureware. Our software was designed to simplify the distribution and accounting processes for operators by integrating directly with your QuickBooks company. On average, we save our users more than 10 hours each week and $40,000 a year in payroll costs by automating the distribution process from start to finish. All you have to do is go to sureware.com backslash demo right now and book a free walkthrough of the software to see if we can help speed up your distributions. That's all for this week's episode. We are so glad you're a loyal listener and spreading the news about the podcast. Make sure you listen, subscribe, and leave us a review. 